Good evening, ghouls and ghoulettes, and welcome to Killer Horror Critic, the podcast worth dying for. Hosted by the Killer Horror Critic himself, this is the show where guests from all over the horror spectrum join to talk about some of their favorite horror films. So get snugged under the covers, grab a cuddly puppy, and prepare for tonight's blood-curdling episode of Killer Horror Critic. Good evening, horror fans, and welcome to another episode of Killer Horror Critic. I'm your host, Matt. And I'm Chris. And this is a podcast where my wife and I discuss horror films like a couple of drunks at the bar. So, <laughs> so maybe you never learn anything, but hopefully you have a good time listening. So tonight we are wrapping up our theme this month of bad and beautiful deadly women in horror. And we are wrapping up with what I think is one of the pinnacles of this <laughs> so-called subgenre, which is Jennifer's Body from 2009. Uh, directed by Karen Kusama, who also did the film The Invitation uh, in 2015, I believe, which that film is excellent. If you've never seen it, highly recommend it. It was my favorite horror film that year. Uh, and it was written by Diablo Cody, who a lot of you probably know from the film Juno. That was what she did to kind of kickstart her career and get her hired for this job. And it's essentially about a teenage girl named Jennifer, played by Megan Fox, who... Long story short, ends up being sacrificed by a group of wimpy boy band <laughs> uh, <laughs> emo kids who want to be successful, only they happen to sacrifice her incorrectly, which we'll get into, which allows her to come back as a sort of pseudo-demon who is now preying on boys. <laughs> yep, as she and, should. And meanwhile, her best friend Needy, played by Amanda Seyfried, is trying to figure out what the hell is going on with her and how to stop her. So <laughs> before we get into that, we have our usual spoiler-free content. So uh, as far as releases go this week, there are a few pretty interesting ones. Uh, first up is a film that somewhat ties into this a little bit, which is uh, called Violation, and that is coming to Shudder on the 25th. Chris is giving me a look like she's about to scream or something. It's a really <laughs> intense title. It's a pretty intense movie. Uh, so this is one that I caught during Sundance, and it's, look, I'll just put it this way. It's a film about a woman who is raped, and then the re the other half of the film kind of details essentially her rage and sort of, I don't know, I don't know if I want to call it a self-destruction, because it's not really that, but it's basically, you know, it details her rage that comes about after that, and the vengeance that she takes, right? So... Uh, it's a very difficult film to watch, you know, whether whether you're a survivor or not. Uh, it's a hard movie to get through, but it's a great film. And, it, you know, it does something that I really like where it's a bit kind of different from your typical rape revenge movie where, you know, a lot of those times those films have women who kind of come back and then kick ass, you know, and just go on like this massive killing spree and whatnot. Mm -hmm. and, and those are fun and very cathartic in their own way. Uh, well, I don't know if fun always applies to it, but <laughs> revenge is revenge is fun. That's a fun movie. Yeah. Um, but, but yes, cathartic, but violation is very different in that. I think it takes a much more r realistic approach really to the topic mm -hmm. and, and how 
and and you know and how a survivor deals with the pain of this so so anyway it's a great film highly recommend it it has an ending that will sit with you for months <laughs> like i i've i've been thinking about it ever since um but that is on shutter on the 25th Next is a film. Next is a film called *Into the Dark: Blood Moon*. So this is part of the *Into the Dark* anthology from Hulu and Blumhouse, and this comes to Hulu on the 26th. And it's essentially about a mother and her child who come to this western town to live there, and it turns out that the mom's kid is a werewolf that she <laughs> <laughs> that she tries to keep from killing people, <laughs> you know, on a and on a full moon basis or whatever. So. Uh, this is directed by uh, the director behind the film The Wind, which is really good. Uh, and this was reviewed by our writer Paul Bauer on KillerHorrorCreek.com, uh, who Paul really enjoyed it, gave it a 5 out of 5, so and called it one of the best Into the Dark entries that he's seen. Uh, and you can follow Paul on Twitter at a nasty woman, so that's A-N-A-S-S-T-Y-W-O-M-A-N. Uh, and you can follow him on Twitter there. But uh, this is one I haven't seen yet. Very excited about it, though, because werewolves. <laughs> give me werewolves all the time. <laughs> and I feel like we don't get kid werewolves very often. We don't get kid werewolves very often. And so so I'm excited for this all around. You know, I keep saying this is kind of like the year of the werewolf. And it, and it, you know, Blood Moon's just another example of that. But anyway, so you can read the review there at killhorrorcreek.com. You can also read my review of Violation on killhorrorcreek.com. Forgot to mention that. And then lastly is a film called Making Monsters, which comes to VOD on the 26th. And this was reviewed by our writer, Mark Gonzalez. You can follow on Twitter at SkidMarksGons. God, I hate that Twitter <laughs> handle, Mark. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but so that's spelled S-K-I-D-M-A-R-K-S-G-O-N-Z. Uh, you can follow Mark there. But anyway, Making Monsters is a film he really loved. Uh, we caught it during Shriek Fest, I think, in 2019. It's finally coming out. And it's essentially a film, I, if I remember correctly, about a YouTube prankster and his wife who go on this uh, kind of like camping trip or whatever with a couple friends. And weird things starts happening. And it's kind of like one of those things of, is it the prankster fucking with everybody? Or is it something else? Something supernatural? Ooh. Um, and anyway, Mark just said it's actually a pretty terrifying film, uh, and he really enjoyed it, so so you can check his review out on KillerHorrorCreek.com as well. So, uh, another thing we like to do before getting the spoilers here is our, every week on Twitter, we put up a poll on at Killer Critics. We are now Killer Critics, not Killer from Space. That was a thing that I made up a long time ago <laughs> that <laughs> didn't really apply to what Killer Horror Critic became. Um, so we are now Killer Critics on Twitter, but... Uh, we put up a poll every week, kind of getting your thoughts and feelings on the film. So between love it, it's fine, don't like it, never seen it, where do you think the audience falls on Jennifer's body? I always just answer with what my answer is, so I'm going to go with love it, because, look, this movie's fantastic. It's super fun. Well, you're correct. So, yeah. <clears throat> so 56% of the audience loves it, 20.2% uh, 20, 20 said it's fine. 9.2% don't like it, and 14.7% so they've never seen it. So I'm actually really happy with this poll. Uh, I mentioned something similar to this, I think, for when we talked about Tragedy Girls, but I'm really happy for this poll because Jennifer's Body was a film that was just maligned, like horribly, yes. horribly discredited and <laughs> and just just bashed by critics all over the place as well as audiences. And 
It's a film that really didn't deserve that, and we're going to get into a little bit of that during this episode. But over the years, it's begun to gain a cult following as people realize that movie is not anywhere close to as bad <laughs> as, right. as the reaction was to it. And so it is. It's really nice to see 56% of you love it because mm -hmm. it's a great movie, and it's just so wonderful to like see it finally kind of getting the recognition it deserves. But anyway, so we also have a few comments to go along with this, from, all from Twitter again. Uh, so this is from at Narcotic Casser, and so that's Narcotic, C-A-S-S-E-R-1. And they say, I lament that this movie was so grievously meddled with to the point where the well got poisoned, because this movie is definitely not what it says on the tin, and I mean that in the most complimentary way possible, because the ad campaign seriously misrepresented a great film. Yeah, the ad campaign for this film sucked. Like... <laughs> It's not great. <laughs> no. This this movie, it's really too bad because it's... The way that this film got campaigned was ostensibly, if I'm remembering correctly, it was saying to a more, like, male audience. 100%. Yeah. And no offense, dudes, this is not 100% a movie for you. This is... This oh, is, yeah. Yeah, this is a female-centric movie, and it just got so fucked over, and... That really is one of the worst things, I think, for a horror film. I know Matt and I have experienced it where we've watched a trailer, been really excited for a film, and then the movie we went and saw was completely different. And it's kind of hard to bounce back from that, even if the movie's good. So yeah, I feel like Jennifer's body really got fucked over in that sense. So I'm really glad, you know, like Matt, that people are finding it and discovering it for the gem that it is. Yeah, so 100% so agree with Narcotic Caster here in that... You know, this film was, as Chris said, advertised towards a male audience. You know, it really so. So, I mean, it, it's been, you know, 10. Well, not. Yeah, it's been over 10 years since it came out. So I don't remember 100 percent of the marketing mm -hmm. campaign. But I will say that I do very much remember it being geared towards like sex, sex, sex. You know, like yep. every <laughs> everything was about how sexy Megan Fox is mm -hmm. and, and, and trying to advertise as one of those movies of like, you know, sex and deadly women you know like very much geared towards male audience i mean one of the posters or many of the posters are 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 uh megan fox just looking hot and yep. you know so there, there's one that's heavily sexualized where it's like her sitting at um a desk in the classroom and she's wearing like a short skirt and eating an apple and it's like it's kind of weird because it's like it's playing up the 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 hot teacher thing yeah but but she's a 17 year old girl or something like that right. so so you know a lot of a lot of interesting things kind of going into the advertising for this but but it's not that movie and uh i couldn't <laughs> i tried to think up a, a comparison of this this morning before i got caught up with work before doing this um but i didn't get the second part of this comparison <laughs> but it's it's advertised like bordello of blood but it's really mean girls with a demon right yeah. so <laughs> It just, it was horribly mismanaged and no surprise here, you know, from like male run studios that that was how it was marketed because for some reason, even in 2009, we're still acting like women don't like horror movies, which is fucking <laughs> stupid if you ask me. Yep. But anyway, so thank you, Narcotic Caster, for the comment. Really appreciate it. Uh, next up is a comment from our assistant editor, Caitlin Nelson on Twitter at 24th underscore doctor. So that's 24th underscore doctor. And she says, if we had all just let Megan Fox enjoy doing gross shit, we would have been better off as people. <laughs> also, no one talks about it too much, but the teacher is disabled, and it's a non-issue, barely acknowledged. I love it. 
Um, and then she just added in parentheses, you didn't think I'd stay silent, did you? No, I did not, Caitlin, and I'm glad that you didn't. <laughs> uh, because I agree, you know, like, part of the issue with this film when it came out is that, you know, essentially, kind of, and we'll get more in detail with this in a second, but essentially, you know, Megan Fox ended up experiencing, I don't want to get into the ugly details of it, but but went through, like, sexual harassment and stuff like that with Michael Bay and, and others, and... She came out about it and then was just totally, you know, tossed aside by yeah. by the industry and by audiences. Like, you know, male audiences totally just attacked her and went at her for it, you know. Because, because oh, she's attacking, like, their dude bro director, Michael Bay. Like, how dare you, you know? Fuck that. Um, and, I, and I will just flat out say, fuck Michael Bay. Yep. Uh, talentless hack. Um, <laughs> but, but anyway, so... So that happened, and then because she came out against them, the studio, or not the studio, the, the industry basically kicked her out and, you know, labeled her as, like, quote-unquote, difficult to work with or whatever. Yep. Which is a whole other thing and a complete, just nonsensical piece of bullshit. But, you know, there's there's interviews you can find going back with her where uh, she says things like, like, I think I saw a claim from her the other day where she made the comment of how she was kind of like, uh, out out front of the Me Too movement mm-hmm. before the Me Too movement became a thing, and, and that's totally true. Like she, yeah. you know, she was kind of a rare example of a woman kind of coming out and talking about the things that had happened to her in the industry. And unfortunately, in her case, you know, it got her banished, yeah. which which is what happens so often, and why you didn't hear these stories more often up until lately, right? Yeah. Where like now we're finally kind of coming out and being like, no, fuck the people <laughs> in power <laughs> that are trying to keep. That are doing this to people and trying to keep them from talking out, right? So, so anyway, so yes, thank you, Caitlin, for the comment. Really appreciate it. And as far as the disabled teacher, absolutely. You know, it's kind of great that the teacher in this film is disabled and he has a hook for a hand, but it's just it's not like relevant to the story at all. You know, he just that's just who he is, and I and I love that it's not acknowledged. <laughs> I I think this is the beauty of having you know kind of women behind the camera. Sometimes is we have a disabled teacher. We also have a female sheriff that's not brought up there's a lot of you know diverse casting in roles for this film that we don't normally see and for that to be happening in 2009 you know it's actually kind of huge like the casting in this and how they chose to do it was fantastic yes but anyway thank you caitlin for the comment appreciate it uh next up is at river city otters so that's river city o-t-t-e-r and they just say, I loved it early, often, and still today. <laughs> Which I will just say, yes. Yep. <laughs> it is fantastic. Um, thank you, River City, for the comment. Appreciate it. Uh, next up is at M Sawzall. So that's M-S-A-W-Z-A-L-L. And this is kind of a fun one because uh, they had originally commented that they had put on the movie a while back and fell asleep five minutes in just because they were tired or whatever. And that they needed to revisit it. And so I was just kind of like, well, now's the perfect time because the episode's <laughs> coming up. And they commented back after watching it. So good. Diablo's hands were all over it and made it awesome. So they ended up really liking it, which I'm glad to see. But but yeah, no, Diablo Cody's hands are all over Everywhere. this movie. You can, <laughs> you know, Diablo Cody, like the reason she got popular with Juno is because her dialogue is just so unique. You know, she's kind of like... <laughs> I don't want to come. I don't want to say she's the Quentin Tarantino of female writers, but she she has 
she has a similar vibe in the sense that in the writing style, not mm-hmm. in person style, because Quentin's <laughs> kind of a kind of a weird jerk, you know. But <laughs> yep, bit of a creep. <laughs> bit of a creep. Um, but Diablo, she's got a really unique flavor to her dialogue. You know, nobody writes dialogue like she does. It's very, very whip smart and and uh, sarcastic and just funny. You know, so like she, almost every other line of this film is highly quotable. I think. <laughs> <laughs> A, I love her her quip smart dialogue that she has with this, but also she has some of the rawest lines in this film. So it's the one thing I really like about Jennifer's body is the script writing is really fucking strong. I feel like it can sometimes be really difficult to like do that balance between having like these fun quotable moments and then having those more tearjerker serious moments. And this film runs the complete range of you know, fun things, and then you have moments like, you know, at the funeral that are much more serious. Right, well, so, I mean, the best writers, you know, they 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 will write endearing dialogue to get you to like the characters so that when awful things happen, you actually care, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> so no, Diablo's really good at that. But anyway, so thank you, M. Salzo, for the comment. Really appreciate it. And then last comment is from at James Shannon Mo 2 So that's James, S-H-A-N-N-O-N-M-O-2. And he just kind of wanted to ask us this question. So he says, uh, people compare this movie to Ginger Snaps and the fact that both female characters are close, then become enemies. And one char- after one character is attacked and survives and becomes evil, do you agree that there are similarities between the two? Oh, definitely. And it's something that I feel like we do see every so often because it's a narrative that, honestly, as women, we kind of grow up with. That, like, we can be friends and we can be close, but there's always that sense of competition between two girls. And I think that Ginger Snaps and Jennifer's Body do a really good job of showing, like, the complexity of that and how it's not just a straight, like, I hate you, but it's usually something that it's love and hate combined to create this just mess of a situation. Well, I think it's interesting because it, you know, it, like, I don't think, I don't think that, uh, that male bonds are dissimilar, Mm -hmm. you know, because, because there's definitely that vibe of competition and, and that I hate you and love you kind of element right Mm -hmm. but but it's it's perceived differently i think both in life and in movies where you know you just don't you just don't see it portrayed the same way yeah and and i don't know why that is but you know it's like it's like a thing where i don't want to stereotype it but (laughs) but i will say like i you know i had a sister well have a sister growing up and i did not witness anybody fight as much as she and her best friend did but (laughs) (laughs) Um, but, you know, but I had a best friend, too, uh, who I keep saying had. I have a best <laughs> friend, too, who I grew up with that, you know, we had something similar. Like, we we fought and we, you know, had had like a tumultuous relationship here and there. But it was always kind of handled differently where, like, we didn't necessarily fight out loud. But it was mm-hmm. more it was more things of like, you know, just stop talking to each other for a bit <laughs> or, like, or, or try to one up each other and things, you know, like it's just it's weird how these kind of dynamics play out both in life and in movies. But yes, uh, to, to James' comment, uh, Ginger Snaps and Jennifer's body are both similar in kind of how they portray the the female dynamic with friendship and, and changing and growing up and all that because both Jennifer's body and Ginger Snaps are also kind of coming-of-age films, you know, mm-hmm. where they where they are talking about the teenage experience and, and becoming an adult and the and what comes with that, right? And, and it's why, you know, it's why I will forever say that 
it's why it's why we've always needed and should always have more diverse voices in horror telling these stories because you know you see you see these films written or directed by women talking about sexuality and growing mm-hmm. up and they're just so much different yep. <laughs> as horror movies uh compared to those same stories told by men right like they're yeah. Because they're different experiences, Very so there's different. Diff- so there's different horrors that work into it. So so no, they they are similar, and it's why I love them both. I think they both portray that really well, uh, and act as just like great films for for teenagers to kind of find and uh, grow up with, you know. So yeah. so last thing we have before getting into sport territories, we always like to do a tagline versus the film, just kind of get our thoughts on the tagline, the film overall. So the tagline for Jennifer's Body was, "She's evil." And not just high school evil. <laughs> so what do you think of the tagline? What do you think of Jennifer's body overall? I feel like this is one of the few examples where they took the tagline directly from the dialogue of the movie. Because that's something that Needy legitimately says in this film. Sure. Um. So yeah, I think the tagline's perfect for that reason. If you use the actual dialogue, then yeah, it's pretty on point. Um, I look, I, I love this film. Like, I will take any kind of, like, fun, quippy movie that's exploring, like, you know, honestly, some of the female trauma of growing up. Like, I will take that over, like, a serious, dramatic one any day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, so the quick comment I'll make about the tagline is I, it is taken from the movie. I think it. I think that putting that tagline in the poster, though, plays just a little bit into the false advertising of it. Oh, absolutely. Um, Because... Yes, technically Jennifer's evil, but it's not like a chosen evil, you know? <laughs> like she's not like she didn't do some ritual herself to get a demon into her and all mm. that. Like so it's kind of like I don't know, it, it it's a weird mix of portraying it and that she's evil, but she's evil because she was, you know, essentially murdered as a metaphor for being <laughs> raped right like it's it's very you know so so to put it on the tag to put on the poster that she's evil and not just high school evil it's like yes but also i don't know kind of playing into the you know maybe miscalculated yeah. representation of the movie but <laughs> but no but yeah i i've already talked for 20 minutes about how much i love this movie i think it's great uh i think karen kusama is an amazing director it's a fucking shame that this movie didn't do better because we yeah. might have more Karen Kusama movies to have come out between that and the invitation, but phenomenal director. Uh, Diablo Cody's writing is fantastic. I especially love the extended cut of this movie where you actually get some of the footage that they wanted to include that the studio cut out that makes it not <laughs> as impactful of a story. <laughs> and, and yeah, and like I already said, it, it's Bordello of Blood, except, you know, with Meets Mean Girls. Well, no, it, it, and like I already said, it was advertised as Bordello of Blood, but it's really Mean Girls with a Demon, right? So it's just <laughs> a, a rawned movie that deserved better, and that's why I'm glad that we're about to talk about it for the next 40 minutes. But, all right, so we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll come back to spoil the hell out of Jennifer's body for you. So if you haven't seen it, definitely do recommend going and checking it out. Otherwise, we will see you in a second. If you've been enjoying Killer Horror Critic, Please make sure to head to iTunes and leave a review and rating, as this helps the show get noticed by others and would be a huge favor to me. Also make sure to check out my Patreon, where you can receive access to exclusive content, such as bonus questions for each episode, extra episodes, and more. To find out details, visit www.patreon.com slash killerhorrorcritic. Thank you so much for your support, and I hope you enjoy tonight's episode. 
All right, and welcome back to our discussion on the 2009 film Jennifer's Body, directed by Karen Kusama and written by Diablo Cody. So this film features a hell of a cast, uh, especially with our two leads. So you've got Jennifer played by Megan Fox, Needy played by Amanda Seyfried, uh, Needy's boyfriend Chip played by Johnny Simmons. Who, who, who do you want to talk about in this movie? Who caught your eye in Jennifer's Body? So, I mean, I have to talk about my favorite little victim, which is uh, Colin, who's played by Kyle uh, Gellner. Mm. Uh, look, I'm always going to be drawn to the soft punk boys. Like, you put a soft punk boy in a film, and he's probably going to be my favorite. And for me, with and soft Co- punk boy accurately describes Colin. <laughs> it does. Like, I look, I really like Colin as a character and a person because, for the most part, in comparison to all the rest of our boys in the film, he seems like legitimately the nicest boy. Like, he genuinely cares about the people around him. He seems interested in the people around him. Like, he, we don't spend a whole lot of time with him. Oh, and reminder, we are getting to spoiler territory now. So, if you haven't oh, seen yeah. Jennifer's body, <laughs> we are about to spoil everything. So. Yep. And I think that that's the interesting thing about having a character like Colin, having a boy character like Colin who still gets killed. Mm. Um, Because I've been thinking about this, and it's a thing. I love Colin, but that boy is still desperate. Like, that boy (laughs) climbs into an abandoned house for sex. Well, yes, he does, because he's a teenage boy. He is. (laughs) Um, But, you know, I think that's what's kind of interesting about you know, this film and, you know, the boys that Jennifer does kill is that they run the gambit, but it all comes down to there's no sense really, and it gets brought up, there's no sense about why Colin is asking Jennifer out. There's no moments that we have between Colin and Jennifer that sets up why they would be a good match. Mm. And so I feel like Colin falls into the same pit that a lot of our male characters do in this film, and it's showcasing with this film that... He is another boy who's kind of just looking at the outside of Jennifer. I disagree. I so so I mean, you're right in a sense, I think, where you know, I mean, obviously, like Colin's an example. Every it's like we talked about before, I, I think, on one of the episodes this month, <laughs> where we're like, look, you know, the, the initial attraction for anyone is going to be surface value, right? Yeah, like, absolutely. Like, you know, and, and especially in high school. <laughs> You're typically not dating somebody mm-hmm. or, or, or asking them out initially because their personality is so great, right? Yeah. Like, you know, there's, it's like it's like any other time dating in life, you're, you're going to be initially attracted uh, through physical appearance. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that's just how it is. You know, there's no nothing wrong with that. It's only shallow if it comes to the point where it doesn't matter to you how True. awful they are aside mm-hmm. from looks, right? Um, so that's always going to be the case. The the thing that I think is more interesting than what you're saying about the the male victims here is that I actually view it as I actually view this movie in a sense. I mean, this movie has a lot of layers, but I one one angle I view it from is Jennifer kind of being the the like vicious attack against the things that happen to women, mm-hmm. and in that sense, all of the male characters kind of represent i think different elements of victims being taken advantage of so so i think it's less about the the men are being targeted just because they are are attracted to jennifer uh-huh. and i think it's more about how she's taken advantage of vulnerability mm-hmm. so so if you so for example if you look at the 
the jock character that mm-hmm. she first kills. I forget his name at the moment, but if you look at the jock character, Jonas. Jonas. If you look at the jock character, you know, there's no reason to have that character be so emotionally broken up about his best friend dying. Uh-huh. It, but it's there, and I think it's there because it's trying to show how, you know, men will typically prey uh, on emotionally vulnerable women, right? Yeah. So so I look at Jonas as being this character who is in an emotionally vulnerable space, and Jennifer is taking advantage of that. Mm-hmm. Now, does she, does she necessarily need to? No, Jennifer probably could have gotten him if he wasn't in that state. But mm-hmm. but he's in that state, and, and I think that it's playing into this idea that, you know, that essentially sexual predators, typically men, will prey on a vulnerability like that. So she's preying on Jonas for for kind of having that like a emo- being in that emotional state. She's preying on uh, Colin, sort of like believing that she's a his sort of happiness in a sense like he, it's it's the the outsider getting the popular kid to notice him yeah yeah he kind of kind of praying on that just praying on like the excitement of it right she mm-hmm. preys on chip and his emotional devastation over his breakup yep. you know so she's like so she's basically just going through and and all of her victims are are representative i think of these vulnerabilities that that are kind of being twisted to be from a male perspective as opposed to you know, t- as opposed to women being attacked in that state. All right, you know what? So, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you this because originally when you started, I was about to fight you with this because <laughs> look in in my mind, each of the boys that gets killed does transgress. She does pull them into an area where you know they should not be going. You know, I do have you know evidence for you with Colin specifically because Colin has a very interesting line right before he's about to get killed where they're starting to hook up Jennifer's moving things forward and Colin asks Jennifer like do you even know my last name exactly yeah so okay there's another moment that plays into that too in that same scene where Jennifer says that he that Colin gives her such a wedding I hate that line so much I hate it too. Like as a man, I hate that line. I would never want to hear you say that. Like that's that's gross, right? Like you know, like 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 you know, there's and and look, saying something like I am so wet as you whispered into my ear is is gross to some people, but that can still be hot, but her the way she says it of just like you give me such a wetty, it's not attractive. And and it plays into you know, something like a man would say of like, you, you make g- me so hard, Ugh. right? Yep. You know, so so that's why I feel that way about it is it's really Jennifer taking on the role of the typical male sexual predator mm-hmm. and putting these men into the vulnerable spot of what is typically a, a, a role that women find themselves in, right? So mm. so it's basically just kind of twisting the two. And, and, it's, and so every moment that you see with Jennifer, it's playing into like, how uh, an average male predator would act in that moment, mm-hmm. you know? So that's why I do love the scene with Colin and her saying things like that and him asking, like, do you even know my last name? Because that's not something you would ever typically see happen in a film with a yeah. male character asking that because usually the male characters are portrayed like they don't give a fuck. They just want to no. fuck, right? <laughs> and so, so I love that it's in there because it, you know, it allows, I think, any men watching this film to be like, oh, that's kind of what it's like, you know, on yeah. the other side. Like, you know, it's it's why it's why films like this are so valuable because, you know, you're you're getting a film that's geared towards women and made for women, but there's also the 
you know, there's also that spot for men to be able to watch the film and hopefully take something away from it and be like, oh, the way Jennifer's acting right now, mm-hmm. I should not act that way. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you yeah. hope you hope that that's the, the thing that they get from it. But yeah. <laughs> so all that being said, you know, just who I want to quickly mention is Chip because... <laughs> fucking hate Chip. <laughs> I hate Chip too. And this is the funny thing about Chip is, you know, Chip is... A terrible boyfriend. Yes, but the thing about him is he is representative of so many male characters from, like, teen romance movies, you know? Because back in the 80s, a character like Chip, he would have been viewed as, like, the really sweet, sentimental dude, right? You know, like, he wouldn't really... In the 80s, you might not, like, like, especially a male audience isn't going to walk away thinking that there's anything wrong with Chip, right? Mm -hmm. But when you look at this film in the context of 2009, I, I really do think that... That Diablo Cody and Karen Kusama, I, I really do think that they're trying to kind of play up this idea of what actually is a good partner. <laughs> <laughs> and and Chip is not that, you know? So, like, there's just so many moments with Chip in the movie that, you know, even make me as a dude just want to, like, smack him in the face, right? So so you have Chip doing things like when, when he and Needy first sleep together, she she's, like, screaming out in pain and she starts crying and everything. And at first, he he plays the, like, are you okay? But then he, like, smiles and asks, am I too big? And, you know, suddenly suddenly he doesn't give a shit about how Needy's feeling. He just wants the ego build of, I have a big dick. (laughs) Which, like, what dude is with a girl who's having a panic attack and is just like, nope, I'm just really good at sex. Like... I think there are probably a lot of dudes that are like that, though. Gross. You know, there are a lot of dudes (laughs) that probably have the reaction that Chip does. Like, that... You know, Diablo Cody and Karen Kusama, like they, I, I have a feeling they're probably coming from a personal place of like, yeah. I, I would bet that that thing with Chip probably happened to one of them at some point, right? Well, so. and let's be honest, like the boy next door for, I mean, I know for myself and probably a lot of other women, the boy next door trope that we get in movies, we all know the boy next door. And yeah, they're just as big of assholes as the jocks or anybody else. So it is kind of refreshing in this movie to have that like, sweet sensitive boy next door boyfriend and he's also a dick well well it's like you know i think it's touching on the fact that both the girl next door and the boy next door tropes are bad yes because they are because not only do those people not necessarily exist because Mm -hmm. i think i think both tropes kind of try to create like a a perfect persona Mm -hmm. for for men and women right you know i i think it tries to do that but but the fact of the matter is, is that there is no such thing as a perfect man, woman, no. you know, non-binary. Like, there's no such thing as a perfect person. No. So, so, so both of those tropes are negative. And, yes, I do love that the character of Chip is kind of representative of, like, this film attacking that trope mm-hmm. and being like, no, this is a bad <laughs> thing, <laughs> you know? Because, like, it's still – the film still adds a little bit of sympathy because you want to feel bad for Needy and what's happening to Chip. Mm-hmm. But, but everything that Chip does – is, you know, I, I think is driving Needy further and further into where she ends up because he's not supportive. Like, no. he doesn't... All Chip ever cares about is sex. You know, the very yep. first scene with Chip uh, has him and Needy in her bedroom and Jennifer, like, shows up or something. Or, or before Jennifer shows up, Needy goes to kiss him after he calls her soy sauce because, you know, she's salty as hell or whatever. <laughs> and and as she's kissing him, he starts unbuckling his belt. Like, he's... He's ready to go, you know? Yeah. And then Jennifer shows up, and and then he's all disappointed. 
But then through the rest of the movie, you know, he's constantly jealous of Jennifer. He's jealous of, like, basically anybody else Needy has interest in. Uh, He's not supportive of her when she's coming to him with her ideas of what's going on. He's (laughs) constantly dismissive of her and, like, her feelings and her thoughts about anything like that. Yeah, he is not a supportive boyfriend at all. For me with this film, it's what I find really interesting. There's been a lot of really interesting choices made with how all these characters are presented. And honestly, for me, what I think is the most interesting choice is the title of this film. Like, it's called Jennifer's Body. Um, mm. what's, what's your takeaway from that? My takeaway is that it's, it's funny how the title acts in sort of a two-pronged way, in the sense that, in the sense that you know, on, on the surface level... I think I think I think the title gets misinterpreted by a male audience because because a male audience might read that title and be like again you know oh this this is a sexy movie this uh-huh. is this is Bordello of Blood with with <laughs> Megan Fox right you know so like I, I think it gets misinterpreted in that way but but the real meaning of the title to me is really about how Jennifer in being this attractive girl is just used and abused by a male society yep you know. So, so like when you really when you really look at everything that's going on in the film, I mean, first of all, you know, Jennifer is just <laughs> viewed as really just a, a body herself, yeah, you know, by by almost every male character in the movie. Like mm-hmm. she she's obviously viewed as nothing more than that by the cult led by Nikolai, played by Adam Brody. You know, she's obviously not viewed as more than her body by them because all they care about is whether or not she's a virgin, and they miss. <laughs> and they just have like you know they 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 seem to not understand women whatsoever because no. they just assume that she's a virgin you know and and cannot yeah. seem to and cannot seem to like latch on to the fact that she is telling them that she's a virgin mm-hmm. because she thinks that that will make them not rape that, her yeah that she you know? thinks that'll keep her safe right um, yeah for me it really comes down to the scene where she gets sacrificed because look we're horror fans we've seen sacrificial scenes a lot and normally when there is a name involved it's always like we sacrifice so and so we sacrifice sarah jake whatever in the name of satan and i think it's a really interesting dialogue choice with this where they don't say that they say we sacrifice jennifer's body um, in the name of this, and that's that's the whole crux of this movie is is people not people just looking at each other like just bodies and forgetting that there's a person inside with a whole complex mix of emotions. Yeah. Um, and it feels like that's very much what Jennifer's getting revenge for. Like if you just see someone as a body, she might just kill you. <laughs> no, I mean she's taking her power back. You know, yeah. again going back into the thing of how how all the male victims are kind of flipped to be, you know, in roles that are typically female. Like, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's it's about taking that power back for Jennifer. Like that's that's what mm-hmm. a lot of that is. Is you know, she she is murdered by this by these men mm-hmm. and not raped, but essentially it is a metaphor for rape. Like yeah. you know, she's taken away in this in this van by a group of dudes, and then she just shows up and then her life is just you know deteriorating after that because you know like like when i look at this i i you know i I will say i am not a survivor you know so i can't come at it from a place of that personal experience but i can say that you know just by looking at it what i take from it is that you know it feels like a metaphor for for rape and and for jennifer kind of you know being this character who is just destroyed because of that right so like 
you know, she she's taking her power back in that she's uh, going after these men and kind of doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. But in another sense, you know, the film's kind of questioning, like, well, how much... I don't know how to put this. In another sense, the you know, we're watching Jennifer deteriorate because of what's happened to her. Because even though she gets her vengeance occasionally with mm-hmm. each of these men that she eats, I think the point of it all is that there there is no satisfying vengeance that no. just makes what happened go away, right? So So it's why you see, like, every time she eats a dude, she eventually goes back to you know, becoming quote unquote less attractive or her, or, you know, deteriorating and and not being as beautiful and like it's eating away at her soul. Right. You know, it's, that's all representative of this idea that like it, that sort of thing does not just leave a person, you know? So no matter what she does to like take her power back, it's still eating her up on the inside. Yeah. That's why I really like the, the visual representation of it. Like after she comes back from the attack and she's in the kitchen with needy, um, and she just vomits the like sharp black goo. Like that's really can be what, what trauma can feel like. Sometimes it feels like there's this dark needly bits inside of you. And I think it's super telling when she has her conversation with, with Colin before she kills him. Like she admits to Colin that she just feels empty. Yeah. And, and that's what can happen when you're trying to deal with, with all these really heavy things you know, and your your best friend's coming to kill you. Right. Um. <laughs> and, and you know, and just one last thing I'll say about it is that, you know, it's it's just so interesting, the, the title and the way that it kind of ended up playing into reality because, you know, the film is called Jennifer's Body, but again, what happened with this movie is, you know, it, it, essentially, it essentially became the... The, the cross that a male audience nailed Megan Fox yep. to, right? Like it's yep. it's kind of like Megan Fox like died for our sins in this movie, right? <laughs> you know, like she she was put up on this cross and just abused by a male audience for coming out against Michael Bay. Yep. And and it's just so interesting to you know to to have the film be called Jennifer's Body because this obviously wasn't intentional, you know, because this stuff happened after this, but. Mm-hmm. But to have it be called Jennifer's Body and then, you know, what's essentially going on in the movie is mediocre emo punk white dudes are <laughs> <laughs> are, are taking advantage of her body and using her to promote themselves and, and mm-hmm. to up their status, right? Yep. And Michael Bay kind of did the same thing. Yep. You know, Michael Bay, uh, you know, cast Megan Fox in Transformers and she's a big draw for a male audience, you know, because she's mm-hmm. attractive and, and he essentially... I'm not, you know, he didn't fly off her coattails. He'd been doing movies before this, but but he essentially is using her as a prop and yep. and he took advantage of her and he is in my opinion a mediocre white dude, right? Yeah. So. And the moment that she doesn't play along, he just ostensibly throws her into the devil's kettle himself. Right. Like she's just nothing, right? So mm-hmm. so it's just really fascinating like how that movie ended up playing into reality with that title, you know, because yeah. because it, it really did you know, it really did become like it's it, it's it's not just Jennifer's body; it's Megan Fox's body. Yeah, you know? and and, it, and she really did kind of become like this figure to just be ostracized by a male audience, you know, because of her speaking up. So, so it's it's why it's why it's why. So, any of you listening who are like, I'm not a big fan of Jennifer's body; I don't really like it that much. 
this is why myself and a lot of other audiences love this movie mm-hmm. and and will defend it to the death and like rip hearts out for it you know is because <laughs> is because this movie like it really connects so much to what happened to Megan Fox at the time that was so undeserved yep you know so so it's it's I, I think it's why there's like a really heavy feeling <laughs> uh, behind this movie but moving on from that you know needy and jennifer have a really interesting relationship in this movie what do you think about the two of them and kind of how this movie plays or or, or works out between the two of them is it weird to say that i wish i had a friendship like theirs i I mean i guess who doesn't (laughs) want to be friends with a demon i don't know (laughs) i am look it's jennifer and needy's relationship in this i think is this is an example of women writing women because this is female friendship um, I love the fact that it's sandbox love. This is what we're watching in this film is what it's like to be friends since you were kids and how you have to like grow and evolve and change and how difficult that can be sometimes. Like it's a really interesting different change that I'm sure dudes go through as well, but we're focusing on the female experience with this where let's look at our opening example of their friendship in which Needy is just cheering on Jennifer. Like, this is her best friend. She's probably cheered Jennifer on like this, super excited, waving at her like since she was seven. Mm. Um, But now that they're in high school, it's changed because you can't be that excited for your friend anymore without being called a lesbian, you know, without people questioning it. So now as girls in high school, they're having to navigate like, okay, well, how do we represent our friendship in a way and how do we manage all of that? On top of, I think, both of them coming to terms with their own sexuality. Um, Like, look, this is a very queer film with everything. And Mm. for me with it, I honestly believe that the two girls are legitimately in love with each other. Agreed. They're, They're just on different stages. Like, I think Jennifer absolutely knows that she's in love with Needy and is not ashamed of it. And is willing to wait for Needy. And I think that that's... Um, you see that because she has her her BFF necklace. You see it in every scene. It's always on display. There's only one scene you don't see that necklace. And that's when she's attacking Chip. But other than that, she always has the necklace. And she's comfortable in that. Whereas Needy is also wearing it throughout the film. But it's always underneath her shirt. So I think where Jennifer is confident in her feelings for Needy needy still coming to terms with that and i think that's a large part of the film as well because like they also have their makeout scene which needy is not freaking out about them making out it very much seems like that's a thing that they have done before and will do again mm. um she's freaking out because jennifer is killing people and she doesn't know how to handle that aspect of her best friend well so i mean you know the the interesting thing here is how jennifer ostensibly is representative of of everything that needy's afraid of when it comes to sex yes so <laughs> so so something that i think is really just fun and fascinating here is so first of all you're, you're dead on in that you know there's there's definitely a bit of a a, a queer undertone going on here you know well, it's, it's not undertone jennifer comes out as bi well fair enough okay it's not an undertone <laughs> right jennifer does say i go both ways when it comes to eating men and women right so she <laughs> Uh, it's not an undertone. They do make out. You're right, but it's, <laughs> but there, but there is a queer vibe. You know, there's mm-hmm. definitely a discussion here on, on the two of them being in love with each other for mm-hmm. sure, and how that love stretches deep. And you do have a lot of references to, you know, Needy being uncomfortable with people labeling her as gay because 
you have the one character I think in the in the gymnasium scene early on mm-hmm. that that says she's so lesbian for her. I think yep. how she says it. Uh, and then you have Jennifer herself later on ask Needy if she got her weapon from Home Depot and says that's so butch of her, right? Yeah. So so you you had you do have Needy being attacked for those things mm-hmm. uh, by society, but at the same time, you know, a lot of this too is about Needy's just either fear or apprehension of sex itself, like going just beyond the the queer elements of it where, you know, so you mentioned when Jennifer first shows up to needy after she gets attacked. The thing that I think is fascinating about that is that, you know, needy in that early scene with chip, like we get the sense that needy is kind of uncomfortable a little bit with, with the idea of sex. Right. Mm -hmm. And she's not quite there yet. And Jennifer, when she shows up and, and it, you know, as far as Needy know, like Needy doesn't know she's a demon at that yeah. point, right? So Jennifer showing up like that, like to me, the Jennifer being ripped up and bloody and all that stuff, to me mm-hmm. that that's representative of like the blood that comes from losing her virginity, right? So mm-hmm. like, so I think she looks at Jennifer as this symbol of sex and and yeah. how there's like this blood and terror that goes with it, and that ends up coming into play a few times in the movie especially during the moment where where needy does sleep with chip and at first it's you know fun and exciting uh-huh and then and then as it goes on she starts seeing images of jennifer you know looking all evil and stuff and Ew. at the same time we're being intercut with jennifer killing colin sorry colin <laughs> and, and 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 we're cutting in with that and then needy's seeing like blood coming from the ceiling and and she's hearing the word hopeless you know mm-hmm. And to me, all that ties into, like, you know, the blood's obviously very symbolic of of sex and all that. Mm -hmm. But then the hopeless thing to me is about how it's almost like an understanding for Needy of once she sleeps with Chip, now that's just what it's always going to be is it's going to be Chip coming over and wanting the fuck, right? (laughs) Yeah. And and I I think that's where the, the term hopeless comes from is it's her realizing that, like, that's just what life is now is always being viewed as a body and mm-hmm. and and someone to sleep with right by the men in her life and that's terrifying to to needy <laughs> well i'm kind of wondering i was wondering during that scene because yeah she is seeing jennifer ostensibly during that scene and i'm wondering if her her hopeless comment is more that you know, not to negate the feelings that she has for Chip because I think that she actually does care about him. But I see that sex scene as more a potential realization on her part that it it is hopeless for her to keep trying to do these normal things. Like, I think that there's a good chance she dated Chip because he was safe and she wasn't comfortable with who she was yet. Ostensibly, he was her beard in a way. Mm. And having sex for the first time is the realization of, oh, it's hopeless. This isn't, like, no offense, Chip, like, but this this isn't going to work out. This isn't who she is, like, and this isn't what she wants. And But she still hasn't come to terms with what she does want. I mean, yeah, and that's all totally possible. It, You know, I just think that there's, you know, the other interesting thing going on here is that there's a lot of imagery kind of relating to, like, the womb and sexuality, right? Mm-hmm. So, so like, you have, you have instances of, first of all, uh, you know, we see Jennifer swimming nude in a giant lake, right? Yep. You know, like there's there, there's lots of womb imagery going on there. Mm-hmm. Um, but then also, you know, there's a reason that the film ends in a swimming pool that yeah. is, that looks like it's 
rotted and abandoned and, you know, just like full of awfulness and hopeless is even written on the fucking right? pool and graffiti, right? You know, and, and to me, I think I could be wrong, but I think part of that, too, is, pl- again, playing into Needy's fears of what comes with sex. And I do think that yeah. a small part of that is pregnancy, because when yeah. when when Jennifer shows up to Needy, uh, after becoming a demon, what's the first thing she does? You know, she fucking opens the fridge and just digs <laughs> into a piece of chicken, you know, and just is like devouring it like a fucking monster. And, and to me, that moment is a little bit of like symbolic for Jennifer eating for two, right? Like she... <laughs> <laughs> and like, the b- black goo is her morning sickness? A little bit, yeah. <laughs> no, I honestly mean that. Like, you know, it, it's her eating for two in a sense, uh-huh. and and like the demon is her too, and the demon is in itself kind of, I think, partially representative of pregnancy, and mm-hmm. it's one of these fears that Needy has. You know, again, it comes back to the title of Jennifer's body, and it's this idea of men viewing women for sex mm-hmm. and childbirth, and like that. You know, that seems to be like society's primary view of what women are good for, <laughs> and it's and it's obviously the wrong view to have. But but needy not you know needy is a woman and she can acknowledge mm-hmm. that that's what society expects of her right yeah so so I think that a lot you know there there's just it's why I love this movie like there are so <laughs> many layers working into it because there is the queer theme there is the theme of uh of you know Jennifer kind of flipping the narrative on yep. victimhood you know like there's all that stuff going on and then there's this thing with I think two childbirth and pregnancy and the fact that. You know, it's almost like being a teenager and watching your sexually adventurous friend kind of do things before you. Mm -hmm. And so I imagine this all kind of ties into like a representative form of needy seeing Jennifer become an adult before her. And one of those things working into adulthood is childbirth and pregnancy. And so she's watching her friend like become this whole different person that seems worn out all the time, is you know, has an insatiable hunger, mm-hmm. is, you know, just not herself, is beaten down, abandoned by the father, right? Yeah. You know, like, all that kind of stuff is playing into it, and it's why I think you constantly see the kind of, like, womb imagery sort of working into the film as well, so. Yeah. No, I definitely agree. I can see all of that. Um, i just like to point out one thing that I think is is really interesting because I normally don't watch special features on a DVD. I just like watching the movie, but I did watch them talking about the pool spe- pool scene specifically. Mm. And uh, Megan Fox made a really interesting comment about part of this movie, and that's about the fact that, you know, women, unfortunately, are pressured by society to fight with our friends. We're, we're pressured and made to believe that women friendships are, are deeper than any other friendship out there, but also you can't 100% trust the other women in your life. And I feel like we're also seeing that play out with this between the two of them. Like, because people are constantly trying to drag these two away. People are constantly telling Needy, well, why are you even friends with Jennifer? You have nothing in common. And this pressure to kind of, like, make them more enemies than these two girls want to be. And I think it's really telling in that final fight scene that, look, Needy never gets the upper hand in that fight scene. Um, The only reason why she's able to kill Jennifer is because she breaks the bonds of their friendship. She rips off the BFF necklace. And Mm. I think that's very indicative of female relationships that fucking sucks. (laughs) It does suck, you know, and, and, and some of that going back to like kind of the, the queer elements between them, like some of that ties back to the, 
the idea of normalcy, right? Like, this is something that Needy keeps saying over and over again is, like, you know, wanting to be normal or feel normal or mm-hmm. society wants to be normal. Like, normal is a word that pops up frequently in this. And it's interesting because, you know, in 2009, we were already coming to terms with this idea of, like, normal means nothing, you know? Yes. like no, Like, a large part of society had already decided normal doesn't mean anything, you know, because there's no such thing as normal in, in that, like, we're all our own people, right? Mm-hmm. There's a societal view of what normal should be, yep. but it's the wrong view <laughs> because, you know, society as a whole typically views things the wrong way. So, <laughs> so, so you know, normalcy kind of plays into a little bit as well where it's like you see, you know, our, our opening scene is Needy being in a mental asylum where she is constant where where she is being told by all these fan club letters of hers right to Mm -hmm. to take christ into her heart so that she can be normal and whatever and to me that strikes back to like this is probably a bit of a stretch but i sort of view the the mental asylum as kind of being similar to like those those christian camps that try to convert gay people into being straight right so so i view all these letters coming in as like you know, people trying to tell her, like, take Christ into your mm-hmm. heart, get get rid of the gay and be normal, you know? Like, that's that's yeah. what it strikes me as. Because who the fuck says that? Like, who says take Jesus into your heart so that you can be better again? Like, Midwesterners. You know, it's just Midwesterners <laughs> and fucking ultra-religious people who do not typically view, you know, queerness in a, in a positive light, right? Yep. So so I sort of see it as that. It's like, and, and the asylum itself, to me, is like society containing needy and containing her urges and wants you know like mm-hmm. like it, it's it's all of these women in this asylum and needy makes the comment herself of you know how she feels like they're just trying to wear all these women out and subdue them and keep them from standing up for themselves yep. and, and that's really what society is right yep. society is just like hey you know just keep be- beating women over the head over and over again <laughs> until they just fucking submit and you know don't have any fire left in them and that's what this asylum feels like is it's trying to subdue needy not just for being a, a woman and wanting her own existence and her own life, right? Mm-hmm. But also also trying to, like, subdue the the queer side of her, you know, and trying to take that out of her and be like, no, you have to get rid of that to to fit into what <laughs> society wants of you, you know? And Yeah, it's, it's really interesting because I think it's another layer to this film is, you know, we do open with needy introducing our characters as we were our yearbook pictures, like nothing more, nothing less. And I think that this entire film is both Needy and Jennifer coming to terms with what that pressure means and how they're not okay with it anymore. Like, you know, Jennifer flipping the script on being um on being the victim and Needy coming out of her shell by the end of the film. Um, it is definitely a really interesting reoccurring theme that we see. We also have like a weird other reoccurring theme um, throughout the film, which is we keep getting references to 9-11, like with the yeah. shooters in the bar or the, the shots in the bar and, and other things. And I think it's such an interesting theme to have in this film. Mm-hmm. Well, so, so I, think, I think the reason that you see that is that, you know, it, it, this film is also – so first of all, you know, 9-11, I mean, that's something that – the country was still very much thinking about in 2009, right? Yep. Like, it, it, you know, I mean, we still, we're still kind of dealing with, I think the after effects of nine 11. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so, so it makes sense that at that time it was being kind of put into the film. I mean, there were a lot of movies around this time that were sort of reflecting on, uh, nine 11 and how it had changed us. But, mm-hmm. but the way that I think it's interesting and how it's used here, because let's be honest, like, look, I, I, I want people to understand, like, 
writers and directors are, are very intelligent people. You know, mm-hmm. like, I, I know that you watch a lot of these movies and you're just like, you know, this is fun or dumb. Or you can even watch Jennifer's Body and be like, this is just a fun, dumb time, right? Like, mm-hmm. the, you know, on the surface level of many of these films, you're you're not going to, you know, get a great sense of how smart they actually are, right? Like, you're just going to have fun with it. But when you really start peeling back the layers, like, I promise you so many of the films that you think are just dumb and fun, <laughs> I promise you that there's actually a lot of really intelligent stuff going on between it. Yeah. Because you have to be smart to make a movie. Yeah. You have to be smart to, to write a script. <laughs> like, there is intelligence that goes into this stuff. So anyway, what I'm trying to get to is, like, you're not going to see a lot of things put into a script or a film that don't have meaning, mm-hmm. you know? So, so when you have this scene at the bar where 9-11 is referenced a couple times... There's a reason for that. It's not just there, you know? Mm-hmm. It, there's a reason that it's there. And so I guess when I start kind of looking at, like, why 9-11's being included in this movie, you know, the other... <laughs> one of the many things that's going on with Needy and Jennifer is that Needy is also suffering from survivor's guilt. Yeah. You know, like, that's a very prominent theme in this movie that's not, you know, maybe not directly talked about much, but mm-hmm. it's it's what's happening with her... On top of Jennifer being representative of the things that she fears with sex, Jennifer is also this symbol of guilt for Needy because Needy let her get into that van and go off by herself and didn't stop it, you know? Now, that doesn't mean that it's Needy's fault, but Needy thinks it's her fault, Yeah, you know? It's the dude's fault for killing Jennifer and doing what they did to her. Oh, absolutely. but Needy has taken responsibility on herself for letting that happen mm-hmm. because she feels like she should have been the friend there to stop her from doing that, right? Yeah. So so a lot of this is survivor's guilt. And 9-11 itself was survivor's guilt. Like, uh, us us as a nation, you know, we I, I know I did. I think a lot of us witnessed what happened with the two towers that day. Like, like I saw it live. So I don't know mm-hmm. about the rest of you listening – but I, I will never forget being in my history class. I was the first person in class that day. I got there early, and my history teacher was watching the news, and I walked in, and, you know, one of the planes had crashed into the two towers, and mm-hmm. at that time, at that moment, we still thought that it was an accident, right? Mm-hmm. And me and my teacher were talking about it, and in the middle of us talking about it, a new or another plane crashed into it, and at that point, we knew for sure this is an attack. This is not an accident, right? Yeah. And and so many people died that day. And, and you know, there were, like, like us, us kids, like, I was a teenager at the time. Like, none of us really knew how to deal with it. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like everybody went home that day to their family a- appreciative of the people in their life that they love, right? Yeah. And, but there's a survivor's guilt that goes into that of, like, at the same time, you feel bad for everybody who lost someone and you know kind of like we're going through right now i think with covid and anyway so you know survivor's guilt ends up being a big theme of this and it came up a lot in 2000s final destination Mm -hmm. the whole franchise is all about survivor's (laughs) Survivor's guilt right yeah so and it starts with a plane right so it's so anyway um you know so i think needy's going through this and so anyway you have these 9-11 shots that are Mm -hmm. that are brought up and you know it ties into what's going on in this town because what's the point to the fire at the bar? There is none. Yeah. You know, there's no point to that other than to further exemplify this idea of survivor's guilt. Because after that, 
the whole town in the background as this thing's going on between Needy and Jennifer, mm-hmm. the whole town is suffering. Like they're just yeah. they're depressed and they're walking around like zombies and <laughs> Well, for me, it's it's also a a commentary on the commodification of tragedy. Because we're getting that a lot in this film, especially with the band, with Low Shoulder, with them releasing their song and saying that they're going to give 3% of the proceeds. 3, and, 3% is nothing. And the same thing happened during 9-11. Do you have any idea how many conservatives made bank off of that? <laughs> like, they're, they're still making bank off of that. Like yep. This is all about you know how we commodify tragedy and how that takes us, again, with the whole theme with Jennifer's body, how we no longer see the actual victims and the actual thing that happened, but now we look at the casing of what happened. Um, and we're going off of all of that, and it's... Yeah, there's so many fucking layers and commentary. This is such a smart, smart film that's wrapped in, like, pink, glittery paper, and I love it. <laughs> well, and, and then the last thing I'll mention with that, playing into before we wrap up here, is just that, you know, the the whole the whole 9-11 element of, you know, this, this big tragedy in the town mm-hmm. uh, and, and how it affects everybody in it, you know, it, it also plays into furthering the concept of like how women are just not listened to you know because like they're essentially essentially using the idea of like there's always an excuse you know so uh so when you have needy you know telling chip multiple times about what jennifer's done Mm -hmm. uh especially that first night when jennifer shows up or whatever you know chip's throwing it off of like People just died, Needy. Like, who the hell cares about Jennifer in her rape van? Like, he doesn't right? say he doesn't say rape van, but, but he that's basically what, he doesn't say rape <laughs> van. But but he knows what, that that's what Needy's implying, right? Mm-hmm. But but he's throwing it off of like no big deal, no big deal. If Jennifer gets raped, people just died in a crash or in this fire, right? So yeah. you know, you, you see that constantly reflected too, where it's like people just time and time again are throwing away the the worries of Jennifer or, uh, of Needy and what happened to Jennifer. And and just pushing her aside because they're like, ah, we got something else to worry about. Yes. And that's always the excuse of like, there's always something else to worry about. You mm-hmm. know, there's always something else to focus on than the issues that women are going through. Yeah. Right. So it's why I love that she throws that line back in his face when he's trying to invite her to the formal dance. And she's just like, no, Chip, it's just a dance. There are lives like she's just like you as an individual don't matter. Right. Well, and that and that. No. And that's a great yep. moment, too, because it kind of comes back at like. But, you know, because cause what is the dance to Chip? The dance to Chip is Sex. I get an excuse that to fuck, right? That's all it is. Yep. You know, that's all that's all any of those dances in high school were is just an excuse to get laid or, or fool around or whatever. Mm-hmm. And and so that's what Chip's primary focus is on. And Edie's just like, hey, fuck your focus. I got this thing going on with Jennifer, right? So <laughs> I gotta save lives, bitch. Right. So so no, it's just the layers of how this film deals with grief. <laughs> And and tragedy and and the issues that women face in victimhood it's just it's unbelievable like I cannot believe that this film was so overlooked when it came out I mean I know I believe it because I understand why because society sucks but <laughs> but God when you start to unpack this movie there's just so much to take away from it that like I'm just it's just shocking yeah. to me that it got so overlooked but. Anyway, so we got to start wrapping up. So who is your killer idiot of Jennifer's body? I am my soft little punk boy, Colin. Like, 
don't go into that house, dum-dum. Like, nothing about this seems okay. Like, it's an abandoned street. It's an abandoned house. You have to jump through a window. Like, fucker, no sex is worth it. Just get out and, like, I don't know, go watch Hot Rocky Horror Picture Show by yourself. I gotta admit, I probably would have done the same thing, you know? Just like, I know. <laughs> you know, because you're I, dumb. I, see, I don't, I don't want to rip on Colin too much because I, I want to say that I think what's going on in Colin's head of just is just like, you know, maybe she's just ashamed of sleeping with me and she wants to, <laughs> that's she wants worse. to bring me to this neighbor. You understand how that's worse, right? I, I understand how that's worse, but I'm just saying, like, I, I get why he doesn't necessarily maybe sense the danger of it at first, but. <laughs> I think it's because I love Colin so much. I would have loved to have a friend like Colin in high school. And so for me, it's just like, dumb, dumb, if you could have just driven away, you'd still be alive. So, yeah, he's he's my killer idiot because I wish he was still alive. Mm, fair enough. Um, so my killer idiot is just Chip because literally everything <laughs> Chip does in this movie is idiotic. Like, I don't, I don't think Chip does anything in this film that is ever, like, I look at him and I go, that's a good move, Chip. You know, like, no, he, everything he does is just stupid. He is an <laughs> idiot, but I think he does have, like, one of potentially the most romantic lines I've ever heard in a horror film. Because, like, as he's dying... Am I too big? Fuck you. <laughs> no, but he has that line, like, as he's dying in need, he's telling him not to, and he's just like, you know what? I think I was dead before you got here, and then I heard you, and I woke up, and I'm like, damn, that's fucking raw. Fuck you guys. I don't want to cry about Chip dying. Chris literally has tears in her eyes right it's, now. She's look, so obsessed I'm, with that line. <laughs> I'm drunk, and it's one, there's two lines in this film that just get me, and that one does, and it, like, it also pisses me off because Chip does not deserve that line. But I will say, both him and Jennifer ostensibly come back from the dead for her, which mm. I think is really awesome. Needy is that loved. Yeah, no, for sure. Uh, so what about your killer death? Oh, it's, <laughs> it's the fight scene between Jennifer and Needy at the end. Like, I think that it's such a, like, it's so well done. Um, because it's the girls ostensibly grappling with their relationship, their friendship, their sexuality. And that's what we're getting. And to like have a fight scene that's all about that with next to no words is so beautiful and amazing. And then you just end on Jennifer going, my tits. And you're just like, what the fuck just happened? Well, so I, I, I will admit the, the one part in the movie that I don't love is Jennifer saying my tit as she dies. Like, mm -hmm. it's funny. But I do think it kind of takes away from, like, the tragedy of the moment. <laughs> I, I, like, that, that, that's the one moment in the script where I think Diablo Cody gets a little too Diablo Cody. <laughs> um, but the thing I will say, because I, I didn't mention this in, in the other stuff we were talking about. Yeah, no. For, for anyone who didn't notice, there, there's a reason that the final fight happens in the bedroom. Yep. You know, I mean, again, like, this whole entire movie is about Needy's feelings for Jennifer, you know, mm -hmm. and, and the complicated... Uh, issues that come with that. And so it is absolutely perfect that their final fight is not in that pool nope. and is instead in the bedroom, intimate, personal, and needy confronting everything that she fears. So yep. <laughs> my, my killer death is Colin. I'm sorry, but Colin, it's a good fucking death. But, but Colin, like, so the interesting about Jennifer's body is yes, we don't see a lot of the deaths on screen, but Colin is his death is so brutal in the sense that you see this silhouette of Jennifer just like, ripping him apart piece right? by piece right so it's just like it's an image that really sticks with me i love it 
Uh, but what about your killer MVP of Jennifer's body? I mean, it goes to Megan Fox. Of course, that's who she, I have too. She's amazing. Um, she's fantastic in it. I will. Uh, I will do a runner up. Look, I also want to give a shout out to Katia Stano, uh, Katia Stano for the costume design of this film because, look, doing costuming can be really difficult because you have to encapsulate everything about a character in. Um, in a really narrow palette, ostensibly. And I think that she does a fantastic job of dressing all of the characters and then that pool scene and how she chose and how they chose to dress the girls um, to make these really kind of epic shots is beautiful. And look, it's... I love costumes, so it's kind of one of those things of like, if if you're doing something gorgeous with it, I can't not give credit to it. Oh, fair enough. Um, so I'm gonna give it. So I also gave it to Megan Fox, and you know, obviously a big part of that is because she. I do think she's fantastic in this film. Mm-hmm. Uh, because and, and primarily because I don't think that she plays up the the sexiness of it no. the way that you might see done in other films. You know, and granted, that's not all because of Megan Fox. Like, certainly, there's a decision between Diablo Cody and Karen Kusama and like how to portray the character this way. Um, but I think that Megan Fox, you know, she has a lot of input into the way that she presents herself and like, she's sexy, but it's not about the sex, if that makes sense. So, so like she does bring some vulnerability to the character that I love. Like I really enjoy, or or I really appreciate the, the scene where she's putting on the, the makeup in the mirror because it's so heartbreaking, heartbreaking. (laughs) you know, like it could have easily been done another way, but she brings just such a tragicness to that scene. I I will just always defend Megan Fox. I don't think she gets nearly the credit she deserves as an actress. You know, she got cast in fucking Michael Bay's movies. Michael Bay can't write for shit. He can't can't portray (laughs) characters for shit. You know, so I think Megan Fox got cast in that and everybody just thought she was just like some dumb actress in a Michael Bay movie, right? (laughs) But no, Megan Fox is actually a goddamn great actress. Um, I really hope who was way better than Michael Bay ever deserved. Look, I really hope that if she wants to, I would love to see her make a comeback. She is making a comeback. Is she? Megan Fox. Megan Fox has been in a couple of films recently. Now, granted, they're not all amazing. She was in this film called Rogue with Killer Lions that was okay. Oh yeah. Um, But she does have some horror films coming out that I think you should keep an eye out for. Yeah. uh, That I have not seen yet, but that sound fantastic. Um, but no, but I also just want to give her the MVP because God damn it. She was so ostracized for this movie and, and what happened with everything that she just deserves. I think any accolade she can get. She so. gets, she deserves everything. <laughs> right. So, so anyway, killer MVP, Megan Fox. All right. So that's going to do it for us on Jennifer's body and our month of bad and beautiful deadly women in horror. So, uh, voting is currently going on with our, with our topic theme for next month. So that has not been announced yet. That should be announced this weekend, I believe, by the time you're listening to this episode or around that time. But other than that, we're about to move into our Patreon content where we're going to discuss whether or not we think Jennifer actually likes being a demon, as well as how well we think the concept of the Devil's Kettle itself was represented and what it what it all means to the film. You know, because Devil's Kettle does kind of pop up here and there and we're not really given a reason why, so Chris yep. and I are going to try to figure out why it's in the movie. I um, have theories. <laughs> but, so, we're going to be talking about that. So, if you'd like to hear that, just go to patreon.com slash killerhorrorcritic. For a dollar a month, you get access to all of our additional bonus content. We also have bonus episodes that we do each month. Uh, voting for our themes and bonus episodes that you can participate in. We also have lists on upcoming horror movies that you need to check out every week. So, just 
Uh, if you'd like to support us, please go there and support us at patreon.com slash killahorrorcritic. Every dollar goes right back to our writers to keep uh, to allow us to be able to pay them and keep bringing you all the original content that we can. Otherwise, just thank you for listening and supporting us that way. I want to give a shout-out to our killer members on Patreon, Ben Scouten, Michael Campbell, Martin Anchetta, Seth Vermotten, Kelsey Lynn, and John Reed Adams. Just thank you so much for all that you do for us and for keeping us going. And, yeah, that's good for us on Jennifer's Body. So, hope you enjoyed. I'm Matt. And I'm Chris. And have a good night, horror fans. Bye. I hope you've enjoyed tonight's episode of Killer Horror Critic. If you'd like to scream with us some more, please subscribe on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at Killer From Space, as well as Instagram at Killer underscore Horror underscore Critic. New episodes release every Friday, so keep your eyeballs peeled just the way I like them. Have a good night, horror fans.